session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so we can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded then of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Before I get started with the book uh, from this past week that I'll talk about tonight, the book of the week for this week is Grit by Angela Duckworth. Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Um, her work has come up in a bunch of different books that I've read recently. And so I wanted to read the original book she wrote on this topic of grit, the idea that it's not really talent that leads to success or doing well, but m- more, um, working hard is having a grit. That means you'll persevere, work hard, no matter what, to achieve a goal or to reach what you want to reach. Okay, but let's talk about the book from this past week that I'll talk about tonight. It is Advice Not Given by Mark Epstein, A Guide to Getting Over Yourself. Advice Not Given, A Guide to Getting Over Yourself. And uh, the book of his I did last year was The Trauma of Everyday Life, which I remembered enjoying, and I enjoyed this book as well. It's a um, kind of a blending where he does a really good job integrating East and West, Buddhist thinking and also Western psychotherapy thought. He mentions Freud in the introduction, but a few times he brings up the work of Donald Winnicott, who I really like, and the parts he includes made me, again, want to go back and read more of his writings and maybe even include one of his books or maybe a sum of some of his summary of some of his work on one of the books that I do for the show because his work really is really fascinating. Um, but this book was interesting. He goes through the different uh, eight, the eightfold path of Buddhism and each one he devotes a chapter to and talks about what it is and how one could use it in their life, but also uses Western thinking and psychotherapy and how it could relate. So some of the things are of the Eightfold Path, right view, right motivation, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Um, And what was interesting for me was in a lot of these different things being, uh, you know, having, for example, right motivation or right action, whatever it might be, a big theme is the concept of balance, of finding the right balance. So for example, even with right effort, if you want to meditate, if you, in a way, try too hard, you won't really be able to do it. But if you're not trying hard enough or you don't put any effort in, it won't be good. So if you almost like try to force it, it's not going to work. Uh, One analogy I've heard for things like this, not just with meditation, but in general, this idea of um, using the right amount of pressure is like, it's like you're holding a slippery fish. If you squeeze too tight, you're going to 
squeeze it out of your hand. And if you don't hold it tight enough, it's going to just fall out of your hand. But finding that right balance. But so balance to me is such a big issue in living a good life, living the right life. Because we like to have black and white rules about things. Always do this, never do this, always do that. But usually what we find is that you can't look at things that way. If you want to be in a relationship, it's closeness is important, but space is also important. So it's finding that balance between closeness to create that intimacy, but also space where each individual gets to keep themselves and not lose who they are. I like the analogy of a fire when it comes to keeping the passion alive in a relationship. You definitely need closeness to create that heat of the fire, but the fire also needs to breathe. So you need space in order for it to get oxygen to stay strong so you don't put it out. And so a lot of these themes come up in the book, or at least for me, that was a takeaway, this concept of balance. Um, he mentions the ego in the beginning and how the ego, and to me more, I look at it as attachment, but our ego and the way we think we're supposed to be or who we think we are really can get in the way of being happy, being okay. And so to me, ego, we sometimes think of as our self and we think of selfishness and the ego as together, uh, going together. But to me, the ego is something different. It's the attachments we have to ourself, the things we can cling to of wanting attention, wanting um, certain things, wanting to be right, things of that nature. And that was a big one for me that came up in the book. Uh, he mentions where people can be very attached to being right. And we sometimes think if we're in an argument with a loved one, even if we know we're right, we have to make sure the other pre person sees that side and the strength or the wisdom that actually can come from knowing you're right, but actually letting your partner or letting your loved one, not just in a way think they're right, but letting go, not being so attached to that, that because I'm right, I have to make sure it's right. And I felt I could relate to that because uh, sometimes when I'm talking to someone and if it's something emotionally intense, uh, this issue of fairness can come up for you to make sure it's fair or if something was not fair. I have to make sure it's clear to them that it was not fair and they can see that it was not fair. Or if I was right about that, things were not okay or something they did, it has to be acknowledged. And that's a big thing for me is feeling that it's being acknowledged by the other person. If they did something wrong or my feelings or whatever it might be. And if I don't get that, I realize I can be very attached to that. So reading that part of the book where it looked at accepting, sometimes you might be right, but you don't have to make sure the other person knows, or you don't have to go crazy to, to get them to see it the way you see it and to agree with you or to even acknowledge it, I thought was interesting. And there is that type of thinking that you see in Buddhist thought sometimes of letting go and being able to let go. But to me, it's a balance because letting go has to mean genuinely being okay with it. If we just tell ourselves, oh, I'm going to let it go, as many people do, they say, I'm going to pick my battles so I won't start a fight. I won't uh, bring up an issue because I'm I'm being very Zen and letting go of things, but really they're holding on to resentment. That's not actually letting it go or uh, choosing to be okay with your partner rather than focusing on being right. So we have to be aware of what we're actually feeling. And that's another big part of uh, the Buddhist aspect of meditation and getting in touch with ourselves is really looking at what's there. 
what do I think? What do I feel? And with that aspect of non-judgmental awareness, so I'm actually going to look at what's there, even if it's something I don't like. Maybe I don't like the idea or I have a feeling or a judgment about being jealous, but if I'm feeling jealous, I need to recognize it and understand it so I can understand myself better and be more in touch with myself. But very often, going back to this idea of ego, we have a version of ourself that we'd like to be. Or put it in another way, there's parts we'd like not to have, feelings, thoughts, insecurities, sensitivities. And so we'd like to pretend like they are not there. But to see ourselves fully, we have to see all of that, the good, the bad, the ugly, and maybe recognize that the bad and the ugly aren't so bad and ugly, but they just are, or it just is. Kind of a Buddhist way of looking at it, what is, is. Okay, you have this feeling that is just your feeling. Your attachment to it and your judgment to it is what gives it that value. I shouldn't be sensitive. I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do this. That's what makes it more, uh, have that intensity or what makes it so hard to deal with. So throughout the book, there's a lot of practical wisdom looking at these different um, concepts. And he shares a lot of his personal stories about himself and his wife and people he's interacted with, but also of his patients. And you see how he's interacting with them. He's a psychiatrist, but he seems to be um, a psychiatrist who does talk therapy as well. And you see the explorations he has with his clients of trying to understand what's going on. And for me, that was also very meaningful to see his approach that at times he would say, uh, and I've heard this from other therapists as well, uh, and even Winnicott talking about sometimes a therapist wants to make, fix the problem so quickly or wants to look smart or look like they know what they're doing so much that they do too much. And it, this idea of balance comes in again. You, of course, want to help and be there for whoever it is you're trying to help. But sometimes we try to do too much and it actually hurts more than it helps or it gets in the way. And oftentimes a patient or client comes in with some problem or some issue and of course they're looking to you to fix it for them. That's obviously why they are there. But most of the times we can't just fix things or make things go away quickly. And he has a note in the beginning where he says uh, what, what he believes in both of these schools of thought Buddhism and meditation and mindfulness and all of that and Western psychotherapy, they are not quick fixes. They are things that take a long time to show their benefits. And you don't always know exactly how it's going to show up or when it's going to show up. But we can be so attached to making a quick fix and for eliminating something that we don't actually get the most out of it. Because even our negative feelings or negative thoughts that we think we have and we should get rid of, they're very often there because of something. We're feeling something and it's better to understand it than just to erase it. And he mentions how some schools of thought in Buddhism might say that we should just get rid of some of these negative feelings and emotions because they cause suffering. But I think he presents a more balanced approach that we can't just get rid of those feelings and those feelings have meaning and value, even something like anger or hate. Uh, and he talks about a very famous, I guess you call it an article or paper uh, by Winnicott, where he talks about 18 reasons why mothers hate their infants. And this might be surprising for people to hear that a mother would hate their infant. 
because we think it should just be infinite love, unconditional love, positive feeling, nothing negative at all. And you'll hear some moms talk about uh, raising their kids and especially even those early years that way. That it was, I never regretted a minute of it or I never disliked a minute of it. It was all joy and pleasure. And this likely is one um, remembering the good and forgetting the bad, but also a, des a desire for things to be that way. Because it's my kid and I love them and because a good mom should love their baby, I never had any feeling but love and positivity for my baby. When really that's not the case. You're going to have some negative feelings. Even he says hate, uh, which can sound like a very strong word, but it can be true. You can be so frustrated, so uh, angered by your baby, which makes sense. It's a very difficult thing to do to raise a baby when they're crying and you can't get them to stop crying. They're waking you up, different things you go through. And Winnicott talks about how we have to recognize that those feelings are there and not pretend like they are not there, but we have to be willing and able to tolerate and maintain them without acting on them, of course. So you might have this anger, hatred towards your infant for a moment, but the mother, and of course it applies to fathers too, has to be able to tolerate her own feeling of hate and not act on it with their child, with the baby. And similarly, he actually says therapists need to be aware of these feelings that might arise for their patients, that we might think that we only could have positive thoughts for them and feelings for them, but realistically we're going to have all sorts of thoughts and feelings that arise. And I think that was very interesting to look at how we shouldn't think of ourselves in these idealized ways. And we want to think of, for example, being a mom and saying, all I feel is good things for you, my baby. But the truth is you're going to go through a whole range of feelings. And so just like the mother has to be able to contain her own feelings, that's one of the roles that Winnicott talks about for parents is to contain their child's emotions. And that's why we're not supposed to just take away the feelings. We contain them so the child can get so sad or even rageful, or upset, and we don't take away their feelings, we don't erase them, but we can contain them. So th with us there, it creates this holding environment where we can hold the feeling for them, so it becomes tolerable. And over time, they get better at tolerating it themselves and creating their own internal holding environment and being that container for themselves, but we have to help them with that. So I, I like the realness in... Um, how Mark Epstein talked about these different aspects of life, that we're going to feel things. And he even is vulnerable at times and shares some of his own things that he's struggled with um, as a husband, as a father, just as an individual. Um, and I thought that was very enlightening as well. I guess no pun intended with the Buddhism, but that we all have these aspects of ourselves that we can have different feelings about, but the less we can judge ourselves and the more open we can be about what's there, the better we can be and feel. And that there aren't quick fixes. Even sometimes people say, okay, I want to start meditating to get better at concentration or deal with my ADHD. And that can be the wrong motivation, not having right motivation of how we're approaching something. It's going to take time. You might become more aware of things. You might even feel worse before you feel better. But your intention should be to do things for the right reasons. And then you're going to see what comes of it afterwards. Um, but in this book, I thought he did a great job of blending and integrating different aspects of Buddhist thought and uh, Western psychotherapy and really 
it's almost like adding Buddhism to psychotherapy and adding psychotherapy to Buddhism and, and going back and forth and showing that we can learn from different paths and different ways of thinking. There isn't one right answer to everything. And to me, again, this theme of balance kept showing itself that we have to find balance in things that we do. There isn't just an all or nothing approach to almost anything. And finding that balance can be very important. So I would highly recommend this book. Um, you might not think Buddhism is something that interests you, but I think the way he presents some of the concepts is very good and overlaps it with ideas in Western psychotherapy, sharing things from Freud and Winnicott and other thinkers as well. So that was Advice Not Given, A Guide to Getting Over Yourself by Mark Epstein. And the book of the week for this week is Grit by Angela Duckworth. Look forward to reading that and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. All right, we reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, most Monday nights, I'll post something on Instagram asking for suggestions for the show for different topics. And so thank you. I got a bunch for tonight also. Um, one of them that I wanted to talk about tonight because it relates in a way to what I was just talking about in the last segment from the book Advice Not Given by Mark Epstein and this idea of balance. Um, someone asked, and it's Nasli A., not mechanical thinking, which I'm not exactly sure what she means by that. But when I, I, my thought when I hear not mechanical thinking is flexible thinking and being flexible in how we think about things and how we approach things. And of course, that's going to be a strength, the more flexible we can be in how we look at a situation, because the more fixed we are in how our mindset is, the harder it is for us to take in information or really see the whole picture, we can get stuck and mistake the trees for the forest, so to speak. And we want to be able to have that flexibility. But especially uh, what it made me think of, not mechanical thinking and being flexible, is when people sometimes say they overthink things. You'll hear that a lot. Oh, I overthink things. And to begin with, sometimes people will tell you, oh, I was thinking about this and this and this. I overthink things. Um, and just having a lot of thoughts itself doesn't mean you overthink necessarily. Now, many, probably most of us do overthink when we look at it in the bigger picture. We try to think about things too much when we don't need to. And this is why being uh, mindful and being able to be in the moment can be so important. But the human brain is going to be thinking about lots of things. Lots of times you're going to very likely run through lots of scenarios and lots of different, um, possibilities and counterfactuals of what has happened, what hasn't happened. So that's kind of natural. If we were in any of our heads, we'd probably be overwhelmed at all the thoughts that are happening. But in our own heads, we're having a lot of thoughts. But when we talk about overthinking, what I usually find is that although people think it's overthinking, what they're actually doing is they are thinking to get to some conclusion that for some reason is comfortable for them. For example, if you have a woman who thinks that men are not interested in her, don't find her attractive, and she's text messaging with someone that she's interested in or someone she went on a date with, 
what you'll likely find if she thinks she's overthinking, if she does have this underlying assumption that men don't like me or men won't find me attractive or she doesn't have that self-esteem, if she goes back and reads those same text messages, she'll reach a conclusion that, oh, see, he's not that into me. Even though when she maybe originally had the conversation, she felt okay when she kept looking it over, she reaches a different conclusion. And she might say to herself, oh, see, I overthink things because now I'm looking into everything he texted and interpreting things. But what she'll likely find is that she almost always ends up with the same conclusion. So it's not really that she's overthinking like she's thinking a lot but she's thinking through a certain lens to get to a certain conclusion. So she'll look and look, and the more she looks and the more she thinks, she won't just take in information and analyze it. She'll be looking for a certain conclusion without being aware of it. Because if you ask her, she doesn't think, I want to think someone doesn't like me. That's not going to feel good. So why would she do that? Um, But uh, she's ending up in that same conclusion every time she looks at things, she's going to end up thinking the same thing because for some reason it feels comfortable for her, which I'll get into. So overthinking, what we tend to think of as overthinking, usually is thinking through a certain lens to get to the same conclusion. For example, people who worry a lot about things, it's not that they, when they think more about something, they think, oh, probably nothing is going to happen. They think more and they start to worry more and they start thinking about all the things that can go wrong, not all the things that can go right. They start worrying, what if this happened? What if that happened? What would I do if this happened? Oh, that would be so bad. That's going to happen. Oh, I can't believe it. What am I going to do if they don't do this and they don't do that? So it's not that they're thinking they're or overthinking about all the options. They're looking at certain types of scenarios that for some reason are comfortable to them and it can be very painful. So by comfortable, I don't mean it feels good, but for some reason, that's their comfort zone. So let's go back to this hypothetical of the girl who doesn't think people are interested in her. And for some reason, when she quote unquote overthinks, she ends up thinking that the person is not into them, not into her as more than she didn't before. Why might she do this? Now, as much as it doesn't feel good, to find or think that someone is not attracted to you or to think you're not very attractive, there is something she gets out of this assumption or living in this way. It is, for example, going to be safer for her to not think anyone is attracted to her for several reasons. One very maybe basic one we can say, she doesn't want to get her hopes up. And if she thinks someone likes her and it ends up they don't, That might hurt, so she'd rather already go in with that low expectation. But even more, it's a lot safer to not be engaged with someone, not get close to someone. So out of a, for example, fear of intimacy, fear of closeness, fear of getting hurt, it might be easier for her to not think anyone likes her and think, oh, look, no one's attracted to me. They're always attracted to my friend or to this person or that person, but they're never into me. And she might play this victim mentality and feeling and think, oh, it's so horrible and it's so sad to, to be me because no one likes me. And if you look at that just on the surface from the outside, you might think, oh, poor girl. Um, you might even think, no, it's not true. No one likes her, but it's so sad for her that she thinks this way. I wish she didn't think that way about herself. And we just see it on the surface as that's just so sad. But we don't see that there could be 
a reason why she actually prefers to feel that way. It actually might be safer for her to feel that way. And sometimes I can compare this by saying it's almost as if we often prefer being depressed than being anxious. We would rather be sad and know the outcome than to go into some unknown where we don't know exactly what is going to happen. Because if she just assumes always and gets to that conclusion, oh, see, he's not that into me. Uh, that's a very safe, albeit sad, conclusion for her. Oh, again, he didn't like me. Again, I'm alone. Again, I have to just be by myself. But on the other hand, if she actually takes in the information, if she actually, you know, I don't want to say overthinks, but really thinks accurately and takes in everything that's going on and sees that there are people interested in her, now she has to deal with all these unknowns. What's going to happen now? What happens when we date? Can I get hurt? How do I know what to do next? Um, am I ready to get close to someone? All those types of things will start to come up that will create anxiety. And so very likely it's easier for her to go back to see he doesn't like me because that's safer. And so we'll find ways to make that true. And what we'll actually do is we very often create self-fulfilling prophecies. So if you already have this mindset that people don't like you, let's say in this example that she thinks men are not going to be attracted to her. Well, of course, that's going to affect the way she interacts with the men in her life. And she's more likely to push things in that direction also. If you're on a date with someone and you think, oh, this person has no interest in me, that's definitely going to affect the way you interact with them, the way you talk, the way you present yourself, even how interested you're going to show yourself to be in that person. And that might make that person who might have been attracted to you not be attracted to you. So in understanding ourselves, what we want to recognize is what are the different biases that we have? Because we think we're just thinking about things. I'm taking in information and analyzing it as if we're a computer, but we're not aware of all the, the bugs or the viruses that this human computer, this brain has in the ways that we think that affect the ways we take in the information. We take in information and get to some conclusions and most information we take in social situations is vague and ambiguous very often we don't know exactly what someone meant or people don't say i like you i like you or i don't like you i don't like you but they show you in different ways how they feel and so if you have a bias to think certain things you're gonna more than likely get to a certain conclusion you're going to, for example, think, okay, most people don't like me. So you can read a text where they say, hey, it'd be nice to see you next week, which sounds good. But then in this person's mind, they can think, oh, well, if he really wanted to see me or if he really liked me, he would say, I'd like to see you tomorrow or I'd like to see you today. So see, he doesn't really like me very much. So he says next week because then he wants to push it off. And then next week, he probably won't make any plans to see me either. And it might sound a little bit exaggerated, but really if you look at each one of us, there's ways that we have different biases to different things that lead us to make these types of arguments with ourselves all the time. As a therapist, you get to get led into a lot of these types of thinking. People will share certain thoughts and things that they're going through and conclusions they drew from different interactions or different things that happened. And you can sometimes be amazed at how good we are at 
coming to a certain conclusion if for some reason we want to come to that conclusion. And of course, I see myself do this too. But we're very good at finding what we want to see. And what can be so puzzling for most people is when I say we find what we want to see, they say, how could someone want to see something so negative all the time? Why would someone want to hurt themselves in this way or to think in this way or to end up alone or end up what seems like unhappy? But as I've always mentioned about the comfort zone, sometimes it has a counterintuitive sound to it because when you hear comfort zone, it sounds nice, it sounds pleasant, but the comfort zone usually leaves us unhappy, unsatisfied, and unfulfilled. We avoid putting ourselves in situations that make us uncomfortable, that make us anxious, but we end up sad or unhappy. We don't get what we want out of life, out of our relationships, out of our careers, but we stay comfortable. So think about this yourself, I guess, no pun intended there would think, but really recognize the ways or try to recognize the ways that you have biases. And this is why uh, meditation can be very helpful because you might become more aware and in touch of the ways that you think about things and the things you tend to observe or take in, but also why therapy or at least talking to someone can be so good. People often think, well, I don't need to talk to anyone. I can figure everything out on my own. And there's a lot we can figure out on our own and a lot we can do on our own. But we tend to be blind to so many things about ourselves when we are just thinking ourselves. Because that same brain or mind that is analyzing our mind has those same biases. So it's hard for us to see certain things. And this is why talking to someone else whether it's therapy or a friend, can be so enlightening sometimes because you say something to someone, you say, oh, this is this, and then they'll stop you and say, wait, why do you think this? And for a second, it can allow you to see it from the outside or take a step back and recognize, wow, I made so many assumptions there to get to that conclusion. And if you really look at it, you realize when it happened and when you made that assumption, it didn't seem like an assumption at all. It seemed like a truth. This person doesn't like me, or this is happening, or this is what is going to happen. And it just seemed like an absolute truth, not an assumption at all. And that's why we need that outside perspective at times to get us to see what we ourselves cannot see. We are very often blind to the ways that we're thinking and the ways we are hurting ourselves by thinking in certain ways. So the question that was asked about not mechanical thinking made me um, think about this concept of how we can be so inflexible in how we think, but not realize it because we think, well, I'm thinking about things or I'm even overthinking. So I'm thinking about so many different aspects of the situation. But very often what we really mean when we overthink is that we're thinking in order to get to some conclusion that for some reason is either comfortable for us because we're used to it or it has something that it gives us. Even if that something doesn't feel good, it probably makes us feel comfortable and not have to face something. We're much more comfortable not facing something than to actually face our fears or our anxieties. And we find ways to think our ways out of having to face them. So as sad as it might be to assume someone doesn't like us or is not attracted to us, it can be safer and we'd rather get there than to actually leave ourselves open to, you know what, I don't know. Or maybe that person is interested and we have to see what's going to happen. That anxiety can be overwhelming and we'd rather not go there. So we tend to overthink our ways into a certain type 
of judgment or decision or assumption that feels better or more comfortable for us. So thank you to everyone who uh, made suggestions on Instagram, usually on Monday's shows. I do that, and this one was uh, Nasli A, I believe it was. Thank you for your suggestion for tonight. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome. Welcome back. <laughs> Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Hi, Dr. Halakwe. Thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure. Um, actually, I have a question about my education. I just, um, a few months ago, actually, I completed my master in psychology. Okay. Um, from Pepperdine University. And then the reason that I went to master program, because I wanted to apply for their CITE program, which is um, require the master. So um, I applied this year, actually, me and one of my close friends. And then um, I just um, uh, noticed that, that um, last week they sent out all the invitations to the interview. And then my friend and I, we didn't get the interview, which mm. was very surprising for both of us. And, um, you know, I've been, like, hearing from a couple of my professors that they even, like, give their own students interviews for the doctorate program but uh, none of us get the interviews and then i emailed them and asked them okay what was the problem with the application that i should like work on to you know like make my application stronger and they said we don't give any feedback if you think that any part of your application needs improvement you can um, make it stronger and apply next year and on the other side, I have, like, two other schools as a backup, and um, I haven't heard from them yet because they haven't, like, sent out their notification for invitation, and this is just the kind of stage of confusion that I'm right now that should I, like, the other school, is one of them is the Alliance University, and the other one is the Chicago School of Psychology. <laughs> And um, I'm just thinking that which, you know, what should I do? Should I wait another year, which is there is no guarantee still that I'm going to get in? Or should I just go with one of these two schools that I applied as a backup? And I'm kind of pretty sure that I'm going to interview for both of them. And um, I just want to just get some professional opinion about this decision because it's really hard for me um, to, it's kind of, uh, uh, despite the fact that I'm actually I'm 32 years old, so, you know, if I just want to, like, you know, wait another year to and then apply again, and as I said, there's no guarantee if I'm going to get in next year, so mm -hmm. um, I just want to know that um, what should I do and is it, like, you know, taking the things that is, like, more realistic and more tangible for me that is, it, like, Starting my study program to the school that I it, it wasn't my goals, or should I just wait another year? Mm -hmm. Um, I know you you said you wanted to call for a professional opinion. I don't have if I don't know if I have a professional one, but I'll have some opinions. And it's also funny because you are uh, already a therapist with your master's and your training to be a therapist, and you know that usually we're not going to tell you exactly what to do. So uh, yeah, I know you already I, know. I wasn't I'm not a therapist. Okay, so I guess technically not a therapist yeah, yet. Yes, but I know. I mean, just as a second opinion, whatever sure. advice or just, yeah. Well, so I reward my sentence. Yeah, no, I'm just, I kind of was messing with you. But I, I can see the dilemma that you're in. There's uh, different aspects to look at here. I think 
I was going to say, and you already said it yourself, that I would interview with the other two schools, at least to leave your options open, especially since you're not sure what you want to do yet. Um, Pepperdine is a great school. And out of those three that you mentioned, I know that by name, especially outside of the field of psychology, it is more well known. So I can see how you want to go there, especially because you also went and got your master's in order to go to their program because they require a master's first. So it, it can be tough when we have a plan and then something happens and our plan not necessarily has to change, but at least it doesn't go exactly as we wanted it to go. Um, so let me ask you this first. What makes you want to go to Pepperdine? Why that school? Um, you know, because, first of all, because it's like a school that um, it's very prestigious in their, like, um, training in mm-hmm. psychology. And actually, they last year, they ranked, like, number six in the nation for their psyche program. So, and then, you know, I like their... The way they have their training and um, all the reputation that it has a good reputation, and like in further years they have um, a higher um, rate for internship match, and also I know the um, professors and everything. Mm-hmm. So you know this is the reason that I want to go, and also um, because it's a four-year program, which is um, less than the other schools that I'm applying. Actual Alliance is also a four-year yeah. program. Yeah, I think their side is four, the PhD is five. Yes, mm-hmm. but the Chicago is five years, um, so these was, were the reasons that actually I wanted mm-hmm. to go to Pepperdine. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Um, you know, you mentioned some reasons that are good. To me, the last one about because you know the professors, of course, I can see that means you know that they're good, but I wouldn't be too concerned about that. You'll likely find good professors at any of the schools you go to. Uh, and your age, I can see how that's something that plays a factor. Generally, one year to me doesn't make too much of a difference in the grand scheme of things. The part that you mentioned is it's waiting a year and then not having the guarantee. So I can see how that um, makes it a little different. And the fact that they didn't give you feedback doesn't help you feel much better. What you can do is meet with professors. I think you said you were doing it before this whole process, but... Um, and see if they have any suggestions or thoughts. I'm surprised they don't give you any feedback. I think, to me, it makes sense to give feedback so people understand what's lacking or what they can improve in their application. And yeah. without that, it's hard for you to know. Um, but I would I would ask someone in the program, if you have any professors that you're closer with, to see if they can give you any guidance. They might know a little bit more about what's going on or what the criteria is or what they really look at and what maybe you did not have or needed to have more of or whatever it might be. So I would think about doing that. Another thing to keep in mind is um, you're making a decision between good and better or different goods at the end of the day. It's great. Mm -hmm. You got your master's and you're going forward with your doctorate and that's great. And so whatever you choose to do, I think it's important to think about it and weigh your options and make what you think is the best decision. Um, A lot of what's going to happen is what you do going forward. So you're going to make the best choice, but then going forward, you can really make or break whatever it is that you have going forward. So I'd keep that in mind too, that don't put too much pressure on yourself. Think about things, talk to people, make a decision. And then whatever decision you make, what's going to be very important is for you to really own that decision and say, this is it. 
try your best not to go back and second guess it and think, oh, if I was going here, this might have happened. If I did this, this might have happened. Because you're going to have to just make the best of it, whatever, whichever it is. If you go to Alliant or Chicago starting this fall, you can make it great. If you go to Pepperdine next year or even let's say you didn't get in and you went to Alliant or Chicago next year, you could still uh, do great things with it. Because we can sometimes get so caught up in the decision part that we don't recognize that really what's most important is what we do afterwards. Even in picking a partner for marriage, I mean, just to take it in a different direction, we definitely should do what you can call due diligence of getting to know someone and making sure we're a good match. But then what we do after that is so important. And once you've picked someone to be your partner, now you have to create a good relationship and a good marriage with them. And so it's what you do after the fact. If we keep thinking back, oh, maybe I should have dated that guy or that girl instead or <laughs> been more serious, we're, we're not going to realize yeah. what's in front of us. So I want you to keep that in mind, too, that sometimes with these type of choices, we can get so preoccupied with trying to make the quote-unquote right choice where probably there isn't one that's absolutely right and the other ones are wrong. What's going to be important is you're going to pick one and then go forward and make the best of whatever that decision is, whatever you choose. Okay. Okay. Okay, then I'll, you know, I'll um, take your advices. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I gave you much. I mean, I'm trying to think, uh, what what are you thinking right now? Where, do, where is your, um, are you leaning in any direction? Are you, uh, is there any, I'm sure there's also feelings you're dealing with, with what you've had to go through. And I don't want you to ignore those either. It's not just about making a choice yeah, is what you go through. The thing is that when I just heard from the school that I didn't choose for the interview, mm-hmm, actually, mm-hmm. I was very emotional about sure. it. Like, for a couple of days, I was so bombed about it. And I couldn't, like, even think, okay, what should I do now? Because I really had, like, hope that I even get the interview. Yeah. So um, when I didn't, but, like, after a couple of days, I started, like, thinking logically and then thinking about my other options, that this is not the end of the world, blah, blah, blah. But now I well, think... Well, let me stop you there for a second. I, and I get what you're saying, and I think it's good. The process you went through is good. But I know you said, it, you know, started thinking logically. Um, but I don't want you to discount your feelings and doesn't mean your feelings have to make the decision, but it was understandable that you were disappointed and sad that you didn't get in. And so, Uh um, yes, it wasn't the end of the world and I'm glad you didn't get get to that conclusion, but we oftentimes, and again, interesting that you're uh, studying to become a therapist, um, we can discount feelings as kind of less important or inferior to logic Uh and emotions are very important too that's really what drives everything we do in life is to feel good or to feel something and that's not bad to emphasize or be aware of so um, your feelings and all this that's why I wanted to mention that point too are important not that we want to let them alone make the whole decision well I felt sad so I decided I'm never going to go to Pepperdine again because I was so mad at them or something like that Um, but we don't want to ignore them either and take that all into account so I'm you know it's understandable you felt those things but yes you thought about it and realized, okay, yes, it definitely is not the end of the world. And that's why I wanted to make that point that you're choosing between lots of good things. You're going to go get a doctorate. And when you're done, um, you're going to be able to do lots of good in the world and hopefully feel good about what you're doing. But I didn't want you to discount or neglect your feelings either. But yes, go ahead. So you, you thought about it and realized, okay, it's not the end of the world. Right. And that's something that came to my mind because I'm just having like ruminating thoughts, you know, during the past couple of days. And then I'm thinking maybe to just start with Alliant and then 
go start with their program and the next year I'm going to apply to Pepperdine and if I get in so I'm going to like create a line and go to Pepperdine so this is one of the things that came to my mind and I don't know how feasible that is uh, maybe it is you'd have to look into that if they even let you do something like that um, to transfer or to if you're at one school to say I want to go to another school but m- maybe it totally is okay but sometimes schools have a feeling that if you're at a school, that means you want to go there or doesn't mean you're that committed to their school. But anyway, you can ask professors that, that know more about the process. Okay. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if that would be how, if it's really feasible or not. And maybe you go there, you'll feel okay and you'll want to just finish it and um, already have a year done. But uh, but nonetheless, okay, so that's one option you're also considering. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then that's it. I think that's the only option that came okay. to my mind because for me, like, doing nothing and then wait another year to just, I mean, doing nothing it means that I don't go to school and then do nothing because I exactly don't know where, which part of the application that mm-hmm. I need to mm-hmm. work on. And this is something that I need to figure out and then wait another year and just yeah. apply and then I lost all my chances to go to another school sure. so I think that's the second well you didn't lose your chances but as far as the time you'd feel like you yes, lost that exactly. year let me ask you do you know what you want to do as far as career goes yes my main goal I mean the priority is the private practice and then second is teaching okay the private practice where you go won't be that affected out of those schools the teaching could be depending on where you want to teach so that's another thing to keep in mind um it, it might not make that much of a difference in your future career now it could but it might not depending on what you're going to do especially if you want to do private practice most people won't know where you went to school of course the training you get and all that will be different but um i think you'll get good training at either of those three schools um so keep that in mind as well sometimes yes, we can- it, it, interesting because one of the one of my professors that I'm like close with her she's actually graduated from Alliance mm-hmm. and teaches in our school yeah and even so. the person you're talking to on the phone right now graduated Alliance so. <laughs> okay so you're the second person <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that doesn't mean you necessarily should go there but I'm just saying uh, don't feel that you're gonna be so limited either I think you know weigh your options I'm glad you're gonna go on those other two interviews um, it seems like you are very it doesn't have to be a negative thing, but attached to going to Pepperdine, like you said, even you might want to start at Alliance or another school and then transfer. You might have made it your goal and it could have been the right goal for you. So I'm not saying you have to give that up, but we have to sometimes look at are we too attached to certain aspects of our path that we miss what's really at the end of the path, which is to, to create the career that you want. I don't know if that's the case, but I want you just to be aware of that potential or that option that maybe you in your mind from several years ago said I'm going to go do my master's and I'm going to do my you know psi d at Pepperdine and you were so fixated on that that you are maybe not going to be flexible enough to look at what's going on and that maybe things have changed I just want you to have that yeah Yeah. just this narrow thinking of I'm gonna like go to that school for sure Mm -hmm. and yeah we can get it we can get attached to it and then also have this feeling that if I go there, everything's going to work out. Where again, to me, it's going to be about how hard you work when you're at whatever school you go to and and especially what you do afterwards that's going to make or break what's going to happen. So don't get too fixated or attached to any aspect of the path. Um, Weigh your options, go on the interviews, talk to professors, see what's there. But you're going to work hard 
to be good at what you're going to do and to keep getting better at it. And that's going to be more important to me than out of these three, which school you go to. So keep that in mind to not put too much pressure on yourself either. Do your due diligence, ask around, come to a decision, go forward and then make the best of it. I do have to, to end the show for tonight, but uh, nice talking to you. And um, I guess someday soon we'll be colleagues. So I look forward to that. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Holafi, for your help. Thanks. I appreciate it. Oh, it was my pleasure. Nice talking to you. Have a good night and good luck. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right. Thank you to that caller and all the listeners out there and to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dawakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.